is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or on precepts of men. So far the reading of our confession. Brothers and sisters, my kids have many books and they ask me to read them to them like 20 times a day. And some of them, they get a little bit tiring, uh, but some of them are actually quite wonderful. I wonder if you've ever read any wonderful children books. My kids have a, a wonderful book by Max Lucado uh, about a great and compassionate king. And there are five poor orphans in this story. I wonder maybe if your kids know the story. These five poor orphans hear that this great king is coming to town. And so they scramble to get ready for his arrival. Uh, they want to prepare themselves to meet a great king, and they want to impress him, and even be loved, and maybe even adopted by this great king. And so one of the children works to impress him with his carpentry. Uh, another, she wants to impress the great king uh, with her painting skills. Uh, another one with her music. And finally, another with his wisdom and learning. But one other child, one other orphan, she realizes she has no special gift. She realizes she has nothing to offer to impress this king, and she knows it. All she brings to this king is her need. And yet, when the king comes, he meets her, and he loves her, and he invites her to be his daughter. And I once heard a preacher say, I wonder if you'll agree, that oftentimes we can bring a whole lot of ourselves before our great and awesome king, our heavenly king. Uh, we can bring a lot of our time and our gifts and our energy and talents. But one of the hardest things to do to, can be to bring this God our weakness, to bring our emptiness, to bring only our need. And admit that on our own we have nothing we can uh, offer him. We can only ask things of him. Just to bring to our God our need of undeserved mercy and compassion and transformation. Because that is what true repentance is. And that's our topic for this afternoon. And we'll see it in two parts, looking at the story of Zacchaeus. First, we'll see the act of repentance. And secondly, the result of repentance. So first of all, the act of repentance. We see this so beautifully in the story of Zacchaeus. How he initially comes to Christ. And though many of us have probably heard of Zacchaeus, uh, maybe almost every one of us here. It's interesting to note that we actually know extremely little about Zacchaeus at all. This is the only time the Bible speaks of him. Uh, essentially, all we know is three things. We know Zacchaeus was rich. We know he was a tax collector. And we know he was short. That's the one that sticks with people. And one day, when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing through Jericho, a big rich city, and as usual, crowds were coming to see him and to hear him speak. And we know that in these crowds, Zacchaeus came with them. And Luke tells us why. And it's very interesting how Luke words it. I wonder if you noticed when we read it. He says in verse 3, He, that Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. And I remember one time when I was a kid, and I was at an amusement park back in Ontario. 
And part of the amusement park was completely blocked off. And me and my friends, we were pretty intrigued about what was possibly going on over there. And somehow we found out uh, that Justin Bieber was going to be over there. And none of us were really fans of Justin Bieber, uh, as far as I know. Uh, But yet, that didn't stop us from running up to the big plywood fence and trying to peek through it and trying to look under it and around it and see if we could catch just a glimpse of Justin Bieber for some reason. Uh, I don't really know why. I guess it would have been fascinating. Uh, We could have just told people that we had seen him. And many people in Jericho were likely doing the same thing with Jesus. He was coming to town and they were just coming to check out what all the fuss was about. Maybe they wanted to hear some parables. Maybe they'd have a chance to see a miracle. Maybe they just wanted to see him walk by. And yet Zacchaeus was different. As we just read from Luke, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. When we were at Wonderland, we didn't want to see who Justin Bieber was. We already had an idea. Zacchaeus was here because he wants to somehow try and see if he can get to know this Jesus. And he wanted to find out who this Jesus was so much that he was willing to do two things that a man back then would never be seen doing. So first of all, we read that Zacchaeus ran. And that means he would have been running in a tunic, kind of like a robe. That's what men wore back then. And uh, this was just not done. This wouldn't have been a dignified or graceful sight. And usually men would never be caught dead running. But yet, Zacchaeus runs. And then secondly, this probably middle-aged man in a tunic somehow climbs up a tree. Because he wants to see who Jesus is. And he certainly would have got some looks. People would have probably scoffed at him, but he didn't care. He was longing to see and hear who this Jesus is. And the reason why Zacchaeus couldn't see is pretty well known. Uh, He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Uh, But I can tell you, as a a wee little man myself, uh, that usually, honestly, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, If you want to see someone and there's a crowd, typically I I can find a place. I can can make my way to the front. Like I'm not incapable just because I'm short. Uh, If there are tall people in my way, uh, I just say, excuse me, and someone will usually let you in. But clearly here... It's very different with Zacchaeus. The reason he couldn't get to Jesus is not just because he was short, but because people refused to let him in. We need to realize Zacchaeus wasn't just short. Zacchaeus was despised. He was a tax collector. And of course, no one likes the tax man, right? But Zacchaeus was no ordinary tax man. Tax collectors, they worked for the Roman Empire. And this wasn't an ordinary tax. The the Romans weren't saying, hey, if you give us a portion of your income, well, then we'll give you education and free health care. This was extortion. The Romans came in extremely powerful with a great army, and they said, pay us or we will destroy you. And commentaries tell us to get the right idea of how people looked at Zacchaeus, don't think of a tax man. Think of Zacchaeus as more like a Nazi collaborator. When the Nazis came into a country, uh, when they came into France or Holland or anywhere else, they needed to find people who would be traitors, people who would help them. Locals who would welcome them and work for them and help them overcome their own people. They couldn't have done it without these people. And the same thing was true with the Romans. They relied on local people who would work for them against their own nation, collecting this shakedown money. And the reason why people would ever do this, I think, is quite clear. 
If you start working for the powerful Romans, you probably get a pretty good life for yourself. You get some connections. You get a lot of access to to money. As we see, Zacchaeus even ended up quite rich. Zacchaeus, uh, what Zacchaeus did was turn against his own people and begin working for the Romans. They would get good connections and a good life while everyone else suffered. And apparently Zacchaeus did this very well. He was very rich. He collected the money for the Romans and likely he collected a little bit on top of that. They could ask for whatever they wanted and they had the backing of Rome. They could keep the extra for themselves. More than that, we read that Zacchaeus in the text wasn't just any tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He wasn't just a traitor himself. He came to others and encouraged them to turn against their people and work for him to make him even richer. Seeing Zacchaeus in the crowd probably made people's blood boil. No wonder when this short man comes behind them in the crowd, they lock shoulders. They didn't want to let this man through. But this immoral, despised man wanted to see who Jesus was. Perhaps Zacchaeus had heard from other tax collectors about this Jesus. That this Jesus was unlike any religious leader they had ever heard. Religious leaders like the Pharisees and scribes, they looked down on tax collectors too, publicly ridiculing them. But what did Jesus do when he came to town? Surely the news had spread that Jesus, right at the beginning of his ministry, when he went out to, uh, to gather disciples for himself, his inner circle, so to speak, he called Matthew right out of a tax collector booth. This rabbi is different. Jesus was known to associate with tax collectors and sinners. More than that, Jesus had just told the parable of a Pharisee. A Pharisee, one of the most righteous people in the land, the one that everyone looked up to and who looked down on everyone else. A Pharisee praying in the temple courts, thank you God that I'm not like these men. But Jesus said about the Pharisee that it wasn't him, but rather the tax collector praying nearby. Not looking up to heaven, beating his breast, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner God. It was the tax collector, Jesus said, that went home justified. And so Zacchaeus had heard rumblings that this teacher was different. And so it seems Zacchaeus wanted to get to know this Jesus. And that's an interesting part of the story. But the really amazing and beautiful and fascinating part of the story is what comes next. Because we see so clearly from the story of Zacchaeus uh, that it was the, God who was the one working in Zacchaeus' life, drawing him near. Because it wasn't so much Zacchaeus who wanted to see Jesus, but in the, the passage we get the impression it was also Jesus who wanted to see Zacchaeus. You can picture the scene with Jesus walking in to Jericho, this big bustling city, huge crowds all around him. Uh, There's a good chance that even the trees were filled with mostly children, probably not many adults. But yet Jesus, walking through the street, walks up to one tree in particular. He stops and he looks up at this man and he calls him by name in the text. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And in this way, Zacchaeus did come to see who Jesus was in a way he never could have expected. But it wasn't so much Zacchaeus finding Jesus, but it was Jesus drawing Zacchaeus to himself, claiming him for his own. 
And if we pay attention here, we'll notice that in the text, we're not told exactly why it was that Zacchaeus comes to Jesus. We can only sort of speculate. We don't know exactly what was weighing on his heart. We're not told. And notice, we're also not told exactly what Jesus says to him. Uh, at least what he says to him during their time at his house. What we see in the text is no hint of rebuke. He doesn't start by calling out his sin. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, you traitorous, cowardly thief, give up your sin and get your act together, and then you can spend time with me, and then I'll come over to your house. In a way, we would have loved to hear that, but the good news is that's not how Jesus deals with sinful people like us at all. Jesus comes and finds Zacchaeus in a tree, He finds him morally and socially and spiritually completely unworthy of his time, even his passing gaze. But instead he gets his full attention. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. The focus isn't on what Zacchaeus felt or even what Jesus said to him in the house. The focus is on the fact that Zacchaeus was looking for Jesus and he found that Jesus was looking for him. This despised man without any friends, Jesus comes to him because he wants to be his friend. And so Jesus comes to him and calls him and went to stay with him. And we need to realize this isn't a casual thing. It sounds like it's no big deal, just going over to someone's house for a little while. But in this culture, going to someone's house to stay and eat with them was more than just going there for a quick meal. This was a symbol of Jesus extending the right hand of fellowship to Zacchaeus. This was Jesus embracing Zacchaeus, validating him, inviting him into a relationship with him. And this is why there's such a scandal in our text. If you look at verse 7, you'll see. What did the crowd say? Did they all marvel at Jesus' grace, that he would take the time for this man? Not at all. What did the crowds do? Verse 7 says they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And here we see Zacchaeus' repentance somewhere in these lines. Uh, or the other word the catechism uses for it is conversion. The first time that Zacchaeus repented, he, he turned away from his life, he turned away from his sin, he turned away from himself, and he turned to Christ. And, and this is important, because when it comes to repentance, what do we uh, usually think of? I think we usually just think of feeling sorry for something. And when we think of repentance, we can often make two mistakes. And the first one, I think, is that we can focus on our need too much. Or at least we focus on our feeling of need too much. To repent, to truly repent, is not just to feel sorry. It's to turn from your sin and flee to Christ. Otherwise, our need is useless. Maybe you've heard before that one of the words for repent in the New Testament literally means to turn. To turn around. You get the picture of us, as sinners, us like Zacchaeus, being lost. Well, imagine for a second you're driving down the street and you're lost. You're headed the wrong way. You, you sense that you need to change direction. Changing direction is something, but your, your need is more than that, isn't it? You don't get unlost or unstuck just by turning somewhere. You get unlost or unstuck by turning and going in the right direction. When we see our need... Our need is useless unless, like Zacchaeus, our need, by God's grace, brings us straight to Jesus Christ. And I think this is the message that I needed to hear when I was younger. Because I had heard about repentance, and I knew it was necessary. 
And so there were times when I would really try and focus on my sin. I would try and really feel bad about it. That's what I wanted to do. I thought that's what repentance was. Uh, I, I needed to feel worse about myself. I needed to feel worse about my sin. Uh, I'd try and seek out ways I'd fallen short of God's law, and I'd just try and beat myself up about it. I, I'd try to feel really bad. That's what repentance is. It's feeling really bad. But that's not true repentance as we see it in our confession, is it? Repentance does start with our sin and our need for salvation, absolutely. But true repentance is turning from this sin, not dwelling in this sin, not dwelling in this need, turning from this guilt to Jesus Christ. One book I was reading recently mentions that as Reformed believers, we can really emphasize total depravity and our, our sin and our guilt and detesting ourselves. And absolutely, we should emphasize these things. But the book says we need to remember While recognizing our sin is necessary, there is nothing noble about staying in this pit of despair. We need to experience it, but we are not meant to dwell in it. Healthy despair is a gateway, not a pathway. We must go there, but we dare not stay there. Each experience of despair and neediness isn't to make us, first of all, feel bad about ourselves, to make us feel like we need to do better. We need to do better seeing our sin and hating our sin and being more sorry. Uh, The experience of despair, as this book says, is to make us melt afresh into deeper fellowship with Jesus. We feel our need, we feel our guilt, we need to. So it makes us turn to Christ, rely on him more, Embrace his promises more. The book again goes on to say, when you turn to Christ, you don't have repentance as a thing apart from Christ. You just have Christ. Beware of seeking an experience of repentance. Just seek Christ. You need to watch out because the devil can be pretty tricky. He doesn't mind you thinking as much about repentance and faith as you want, as long as you do not think about Christ. But isn't that true? The devil would love it if we just thought of repentance as feeling really bad, just looking at our sin and focusing on our sin and staying there. That's not true repentance. It's seeing our needs, seeing how desperate we are, and turning to Christ, the Savior who can do something about it, who did do something about it. So that's the first mistake that we can make when talking about repentance, focusing on our need too much, as though it's something just apart from Christ that can help us. But the other mistake, the more common mistake, I think, is focusing on our need too little. You know what I mean? It's easy to pray, uh, Father, forgive me for all my sins, amen. And just leave it at that. And not really think of it more deeply. And prayers like this are okay, of course. Uh, The Lord Jesus himself taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, as a, a blanket statement. And we can see examples in scripture of praying for forgiveness for sins that we've unwittingly committed, can't we? But yet, at the same time, we see an emphasis in Scripture on confession. We're told in 1 John 1, for example, to confess our sins to God. Are we doing this? Confessing specific sins to God? We're told in James chapter 5 to confess our sins to one another. Are we doing that? Confessing sins to one another? One of the most stark passages on confession is Psalm 32. There we read, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away 
through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We need to ask, when's the last time we've confessed specific sins to God or to others and asked others to pray for us? Maybe it's a specific sin you're struggling with, or uh, maybe there's something that you're just trying to convince yourself it's not really sin. Or maybe the sin that we're struggling with is just, in general, not really seeing our sins. Not really feeling that convicted by our sins. Not feeling that deeply conscious and sorry for our sins. And again, repentance isn't focusing harder and trying to pinpoint all our flaws and feel really bad about them. It's taking our need, even if our need is not seeing our weakness not feeling this heartfelt sorrow that the catechism talks about. Our need, we can take right to Christ. And turning to Christ, we will start to grieve for our sin and how it's offended our God. But we'll also start to rejoice, as the catechism says. And we'll see that so clearly through Zacchaeus in our second point. We see there the result of true repentance. So after spending some time with Jesus, uh, we don't know how long, but we read in verse 8, eventually Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, look, Lord, half my, give, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And in this context, it's helpful for us to realize uh, that the Old Testament scriptures, all the laws that you read there, uh, they tend to be very uh, favorable. They're very generous for people who were stolen from or oppressed. Uh, usually if someone was stolen from or oppressed, you would think, that they should just be paid back exactly what was stolen from them, right? 100%. But we actually read repeatedly in the Old Testament law that the offender was required to pay back not just what was stolen, but an extra 20% on top of that as well to make it up to the person who, who was stolen from, the person who was oppressed. And here, though, we see something radically different. Zacchaeus, after spending time in the presence of Jesus, after hearing him preach, Uh, After having dinner and fellowship with Christ, Zacchaeus says, If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I shall restore it, not 120%. He says, I will restore it 400%. Four times whatever I took. And on top of that, Zacchaeus says, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And so we need to notice here, Zacchaeus isn't begrudgingly admitting in his sin and then doing nothing. And he's not just admitting his sin and then begrudgingly following the law, uh, just doing 120%. But Zacchaeus, after meeting Jesus, in his immense joy and thankfulness for who this man is and what he's done, he's willing to go far and above what the, uh, beyond what the law requires. And I'm reminded of the, the verses in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul, he's just outlined the gospel in the beginning part, of the book of Ephesians. And then he starts to describe the Christian life, the radical transformation people have when they begin to forgive others as Christ forgave them and uh, love others as Christ loved them. And Paul says there, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, not just to provide for himself so that he doesn't have to steal, doing honest work with his hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Isn't that beautiful? A picture of the transformation that going to Christ and seeing how generous 
uh, he is, that it should have in us. People who were robbers, they should turn into generous gift givers when coming to Christ. Because when it's, it's when we come to Christ that we'll stu- truly start to hate our sin and we'll truly start to desire and delight in doing good. And not just the bare minimum of what the law requires. I think sometimes we can fall into that trap too. Like, does the law really say this? Do I really have to give this up? Do I really have to not do this? Well, that's not the picture we get with Zacchaeus at all. Zacchaeus, out of great gratitude, goes above and beyond what the law literally says just to the principle behind it of being generous as God was so generous with him. And that's what Zacchaeus did. And we need to to wonder why did he do it? Well, of course, he got to meet Jesus. And in Jesus, he got to hear that God was more gracious and compassionate and loving even to people like him, to sinners, than he had ever dared hope. Than anyone had ever told him before. He was just amazed. More than that, he got to experience that Jesus loved him. And it was Zacchaeus' joy to show love back for Jesus. Uh, But Tim Keller argues that there's another reason. A reason that when he realized it, it convicted him and it should convict each of us as well. Why was Zacchaeus so moved? Why was his response so radical? It's because he knew that Jesus was bearing the scorn of the crowds outside. Not only was Zacchaeus getting grace he didn't deserve, Jesus was getting scorn that he didn't deserve. Jesus deserved people to bow down before him. He deserved their praise and amazement. Instead, people were mocking him. That he would spend time with someone like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was amazed and humbled and moved and changed. That Jesus would love him so sincerely and so self-sacrificially at the cost of his own reputation. And so Zacchaeus, in turn, was willing to make sacrifices for Christ. And the question is, of course, what about us? Because we too know that Jesus came to us and sought us out when we weren't worthy. We read elsewhere, he too calls us by name. He knows his sheep, not just Zacchaeus. He came to us when we didn't deserve it, and he called us to himself. And we know this for Jesus didn't just cost him his reputation. We know to call us by name, it cost Jesus his life. This was costly for Jesus to bring us back to God. And this self-sacrificial love of Christ, it's what drives us back to Christ and it's what drives us to self-sacrificial love as well. We want to give up all the sin that almost killed us. It almost did. We want to give up all the sin that actually did kill our dearest friend, Jesus. And we want to run back to Jesus' loving arms time and time again. Every single day. As the Catechism says, repentance isn't just a one-time thing. For believers in Christ, repentance is a daily thing. Every day, we'll come across sins that we commit. And our calling each day is to turn from that sin, to hate that sin, to run to Jesus Christ, the one who can save us from that sin, who paid for that sin, and who can make us hate that sin as much as he hated it. As we read in Lord's Day 33, true repentance, not just feeling sorry, true repentance involves grieving with a heartfelt sorrow, that we have offended God by our sin, and more and more hating it and fleeing from it. And at the same time, it is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ, and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. And we see that so beautifully in the story of Zacchaeus, don't we? 
We don't hear about Zacchaeus again. We don't really know much more about him, but we know this was just step one. It was a big step, of course. His initial repentance, his initial conversion to Christ. But he had other sins that needed to be dealt with. Greed, I'm sure, would rear its ugly head again later. Maybe pride and other things. And his calling each day, again, was to see this need and run to Christ. The one who could free him from this need and save him. And this is where the children's story that I mentioned before that I really like, uh, this is where it kind of falls apart. Uh, Because it's wonderfully true, it's a a beautiful picture about how Jesus comes to us as this magnificent king in our time of need. But in the story, the orphan little girl is loved the king, and it just costs the king absolutely nothing. That's not the true gospel. The true gospel is so much sweeter. It costs Jesus everything to love us. It costs him everything to save us. For Christ to adopt us as his children and raise us up and transform us and teach us to hate sin and love the way of God. Jesus gave up everything. He gave up his life. He gave up his comfort. He gave up his glory in heaven for a time and came down to earth. And now as we go to him, we see that we're called to follow the same road. To repent, to turn from our sin, to turn from worldly things, to self-sacrificially love Christ and others as he loved us. And living with and for this great king every day, we should seek out our sin and hate it and flee from it and try to kill it by running to Christ, the one who gave up everything to save us. And we should focus not just on the initial act of repentance, but rather on the result of repentance, which is just more repentance. A life turning from our sin, taking not just our gifts and our talents and abilities to Christ, but bringing him the most difficult thing to bring him of all. Just bringing him our need time and time again. Are we bringing Christ our need specifically and intentionally? Identifying sin and God helping us. Forsaking that sin and turning to Christ. Asking that Christ would crucify it. Asking that he would free it. And that he would make himself our all in all. As one author writes so helpfully, repenting is coming to Christ and telling him exactly why you need him right now. Are we coming to Christ and telling him exactly why we need him? right now? Are we like Zacchaeus coming to know this Christ? Because that's where we'll learn to grieve our sin, and that's where Christ will teach us to joyfully give it up and sacrifice it and turn to him instead. Amen. Let's sing together in